Heavenly Father, again, we come before you as Eternal City Church, expectant, humbly waiting to receive from you. Father, we need you, by your Spirit, to open up this text. We do pray that you would help us in these moments. Help us to see clearly what you're saying in your word. Help us to be open to rebuke, encouraged by what needs to encourage our souls, and would we be challenged, I pray. May Jesus be lifted up high in our affections because of this evening. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight is a closing night. We are finishing the book of James tonight. It feels like we've been in James for a long time. And what a fitting text to close out the book. Now, as you know, or maybe you don't because you weren't here, uh, Eddie preached on prayer and asking for healing by the elders' hands and prayers. And Tyree then finished out the book of James, at least in chronological order, with prayer. But this text could fittingly also close the book of James. And here's why. Because he comes right back around to what he opened up with. And if you remember, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of various kinds. For the testing of your faith produces endurance. And God is doing a work in you. I'm now paraphrasing through your suffering, through your trials, to complete you. God has something good for you. God has a gift for you in your troubles. And that seems so paradoxical. None of us would say, give me that gift. Even if the result would be completeness, I think most of us would say, I don't want that gift. I sure don't like the gift of suffering, trouble, trials, and trouble. Anyone else like that gift? No one wants to admit it, that they don't like it either. You guys are much more holy than I. That's okay. No, I saw some heads shaking. But James here says, be patient. And this is a mark of the book. Oftentimes in suffering, we are tempted to throw in the towel, to go after the temptation that's been plaguing us, plaguing us, plaguing us. I'm just giving in. I fought too long, too hard. I'm just giving in. Or to give up altogether. You know, Jesus told that parable about the seed that got choked out by the troubles and trials of life. Some, some have just given up on the faith altogether. I didn't sign up for this. And so James, throughout this entire letter, from front to back, has been encouraging us to walk the Christian life out. Not just in word, but in deed. And part of what we need to be about as Christians is patiently enduring or the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. We persevere, yes, actively, but ultimately it's God causing us, enabling us, energizing us to persevere. And listen, as an encouragement, the mark of the Christian, though you stumble and you fall and you get bloody, and you get knocked out, and you get knocked down, you will keep getting back up. That's the Christian life. You keep getting back up. 
And yes, that should be encouraging. Because if you've walked in here tonight like, I am killing it. Obeying all that I've commanded. You know, you're looking in the mirror. I'm awesome, popping your collar like the fawns. That's 80s. I keep doing those 80s and 70s references. Sorry. We all fall, stumble in many ways. And so let's, let's together close out the book, be challenged, be encouraged, and let's start. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now I want to do something a little strange. I want to take the last verse first. So I'm going to open up with verse 12. Reason being, it's kind of separate from what James is getting at and being patient and suffering well. Uh, a big theme throughout James has been sins of the mouth. It's even in here. It's grumbling. It's uh, complaining is in the context. But James here in verse 12 says, Do not swear by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now the backdrop in James thinking, you know, he's a good Jewish apostle, small a, not capital A, and he knows his Leviticus. Leviticus 19.12 says this, you shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. God is very concerned that we do not use his name in a disrespectful way, it should never be named among us using God's name to curse and express disgust. That should not come out of your mouth. And if it does, I highly encourage you to repent of that sin. I mean, that is a, it's a grievous sin to use God's name to express disgust. And I know that you hear it all day at work and you hear it all on the TV and in the movies and in the songs. It should not be named among us. Okay, And this is not so much saying that, but what this is saying is we respect God's name so much so that we would not swear by it. Rather, we Christians should be of such a high quality of character that when we say yes, we're going to follow through with a yes. When we say no, we're going to follow through with a no every time. We shouldn't have to back it up. We should be so consistent and our quality of character that our yes means yes and our no means no and we're so consistent that when I say yes to you, you just know. He's coming through on whatever he said yes to. And if he can't come through, he's going to let me know. Why? He's not just going to not show up. And we know that Jesus uh, thought this important too. 
And it was Matt Chandler who said, if you lay the Sermon on the Mount and the book of James side by side, James is like an exposition of the Sermon on the Mount. And you can see the themes clearly. I mean, it's there. And so it doesn't surprise me that Jesus said this in Matthew 5. Again, you have heard it was said by those to those of old, you shall not swear falsely. That's Leviticus 19.2. But shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. And my are unfortunately going white at a rapid pace. And I refuse to die in black. Like... Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more comes from evil, or some translations, the evil one. David Platt commenting there says, James is saying that faith that perseveres is trustworthy in speech. Trustworthy in speech. The words from our mouths should be so consistent and dependent that they guarantee reliability. Now listen, that, that is a goal that we should all be striving towards. Okay. We shouldn't have to say, look, I'm going to do this, I swear to you, by God. Or, you know, in this cultural context, it was by heaven, or by God's throne, or by Jerusalem, or by my own head. I swear to you on my life. We should be so consistent as Christians in what we say we will do and won't do, that it should be that and that alone. Yes and no. Oh God, make us those kind of Christians. Please. Moving on to verse 7 now. Be patient, therefore. Now, the therefore always points to what just came previously. And if you remember, now three weeks ago, James was stingingly condemning rich oppressors. If you remember the analogy, I said if we weren't asleep and James is shaking us trying to wake us up. He is now plunging us under ice cold water and pulling us up out trying to wake us up. And what he has said in the previous text is there's condemnation coming for those who would abuse and use the people of God for their advantage. And not just the people of God, but any people. Especially those who gain wealth by the abuse and use of others. God does not take that lightly. And James' encouragement is condemnation is coming on those who practice such injustice. It's coming. And so, in light of the judgment of those who are oppressing some of the readers of this book, obviously, he says, be patient, therefore. God is coming in judgment. On your behalf, be patient, therefore, brothers, that could be brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. Now, we're talking about the return of Jesus. We know as Christians, it is a fact. The details about that fact are highly debated, and libraries are full of books debating that truth. But what we do know as Christians is he is coming back physically to rule and reign on this earth. And listen, James says he's at the door. Verse 9b, the judge is standing at the door. The image is Jesus is at the door of our earth and he's got his hand on the handle and he's turning the knob. 
and he's about to open up the door to our earth and step in. And when he steps in, all the injustice is over. All the oppression is over. All the suffering is over. And so James is saying, it's coming. He's at the door. Be patient. Be patient. The Bible lifts up patience over and over again as a high virtue. In fact, the Holy Spirit might produce that in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience. The fourth mark of the Holy Spirit in your life is that He will make you, is making you right now as we speak into a patient person. Now how many of you were told this past week, you're just exuding patience? Anybody? One guy. Okay, the only patient man in the room. If you go rub up against him, maybe some of his patience will rub off onto you. We're not usually marked by patience. And the reason is because our culture is a fast-paced, have-it-now, microwave, you know, can the internet get any faster? Are any of you young enough to remember dial-up? Put your hand up. Okay, a lot of you remember dial-up. So that weird noise, and you're like... And then you go to download a 3.5 megabyte song and you're waiting a half hour. You're like, it's coming, baby. Like, you can download now about 500 songs in a minute. That wasn't that long ago that dial-up was a common household thing. And so now we're like 500 songs, one minute, and, and it's just gonna get faster and faster. And the question we have to ask is, are we any more patient? No, we're less patient now than ever before. I, if I was alive 200 years ago, I would have had to brew coffee by fire. I can't even imagine that. Like, I, I get impatient with the 10-minute drip brew system. I'm like, if I could only have that 30-second curry, instant coffee. But it's not instant, which is amazing. We are, we are uh, instant, impatient culture. It marks us. But God is about us becoming patient people. Guess how we become patient people? God frustrating the best made plans of mice and men. So how many of your plans got frustrated this week? Yeah, God's making you into a patient person. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of various kinds because he's completing you. He's making you patient. It is possible to rejoice when everything's going wrong because you know and you can remember that God is doing something in your life. He's producing patience in you. Now, the attitude, this is Douglas J. Moo, a uh, fantastic James scholar who has been a great help to me through this entire trek through the book of James. Douglas J. Moo has been fantastic in helping me. He says, the attitude that James calls on us to adapt here then includes resignation in the face of suffering along with confident expectation of a day when the fortunes of this life will be reversed. And negatively, James is probably also implicitly forbidding his readers from taking vengeance on their oppressors. It's two things, a reversal of fortunes and not to take vengeance. That means that all the bad things in your life, if you're a Christian, will one day be reversed and those very bad things will turn into glorious goods. 
the very foul, disgusting things that you look back on and say, oh my gosh, in the resurrection, those things will actually be reversed and turned into glorious gifts. And we can't understand how God will do that, but the promise is He will. The great reversal of fortunes. Secondly, James is probably saying here, be patient. Don't form a coup. Don't form a militia. Don't try to overtake the oppressors. In fact, Paul said something very similar in Romans 12, 18 to 19. He says this, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Tell that to Iron Man and the Hulk and Captain America. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And so the teaching here, implicitly but explicit in Paul and Romans is, listen, God will have the last laugh. You don't have to get it. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So what do we do when we see injustice? We pray and realize that God sees it more clearly and cares about it more deeply than we do. Doesn't encourage passivity, it just means we leave the wrath up to God. We leave the equaling out of the injustice to God. Tim Keller in his book, The Reason for God, highly, highly recommend this book, has a really helpful piece on why the coming wrath of God actually promotes peace and not violence by Christians. Can I read that to you? Okay, listen up. If you believe in a God who smites evildoers, you may think it perfectly justified to do some of the smiting yourself. Be like God, after all, right? We should be godly people. Yale theologian Mirslav Volf, a Croatian, has been, who has seen the violence in the Balkans, does not see the doctrine of God's judgment that way. He writes, If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. The only means of prohibiting all recourse to violence by ourselves is to insist that violence is legitimate only when it comes from God. My thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine judgment or vengeance. It will be unpopular with many in the West, but it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence results from the belief in God's refusal to judge. In a sun-scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die with other, other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. One more paragraph. This is Tim now. In this fascinating passage, Wolf reasons that it is the lack of belief in God or the God of vengeance that secretly nourishes violence. The human impulse to make perpetrators of violence pay for their crimes is almost an overwhelming one. It cannot possibly be overcome with platitudes like, now don't you see that violence won't solve anything? If you have seen your home burned down and your relatives killed and raped, such talk is laughable. It shows no real concern for justice. Yet victims of violence 
are drawn to go far beyond justice into vengeance that says, you put out one of my eyes, so I put out both of yours. They are pulled inexorably into an endless cycle of violence, of strikes and counter-strikes, nurtured, uh, nurtured and justified by the memory of terrible wrongs. And so the point that Tim is making here, by quoting Wolf, is saying that only if you have this view that one day God will bring justice about, that's the only way that you cannot respond with violence when you see injustice. I mean, how can these Christians who are being oppressed by the rich and wealthy who have the power over them, how can they not rise up and destroy those who were oppressing them, if not that one day God will have the last laugh? I don't know the answer. But because we believe that vengeance is God's and He will repay, we can leave injustice up to Him. And I'm not saying inaction. That's not what I'm saying. I'm talking about Christian violence as a means of vengeance. Never called to that. Verse 7b, See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and late rains. Now, this was written in a day when this was not possible. Okay? You can have this for a large sum of money to water your field. And you don't need it to rain. In fact, we could go beyond this. Uh, that, this is a proposal of a new skyscraper in New York City. Uh, let me read you from... <laughs> this is from inhabitant.com called Urban Farming. You ready for this? The Weston Baker Creative Group has proposed a compelling mixed-use build building alongside New York City's High Line. An apartment high-rise could spring up near the popular elevated park containing residences, an art gallery, and 10 floors of indoor farming terraces. Glass windows would allow passerbys to watch the greens grow amid the hustle and bustle of city life. Is this the future of farms? So you come out of your apartment with your coffee in the morning and you get to look down on the corn growing and the avocados and the coconuts because you can control the climate. But in the day that James is writing, no such thing could exist. They were completely dependent on the rain. And unless you're Elijah, you can't control the rain. Let me read you from Deuteronomy 11, 13 to 15, which James probably has in mind here. If you will indeed obey my commands that I command you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give you rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the latter rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil, and he will give grass to your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. What James here is doing is he's saying that in this culture, farmers were absolutely dependent on the providence of God sending the rain to make even the grass grow so that the livestock didn't die. If the rain doesn't show up, you don't eat. If the rain doesn't show up, your animals don't eat. 
And it just so happens you eat the crops and the animals, and so you starve as well. And this is what, what could be called subsistence farming, mostly. In other words, they live off what they grow. And so he's saying, be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. And his illustration is, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. So his, his picture is, there's a farmer, he plants the seed, Jesus mentioned this in a parable, and, and he plants the seed, and then he goes to sleep. Because there's not much else he can do. He just has to wait. He has to wait for the rain and for God to make it grow. And so James is saying, be patient like a farmer that waits for the crop. In other words, trust in God's sovereign sending of the resolution of your particular suffering. What are you going through that's messed up right now? What is plaguing you? What, are you? what have you been praying for that God would just resolve? James is saying, look, like a farmer is patient for the crop, just be patient. God hears you. He sees you. He is not blind to what you're going through. Be patient. He will come through. That's the encouragement. Be patient. God sees you. He is not blind. He is very near. So you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Establish your hearts means this. It means stand firm. Strengthen your hearts. It's spiritual firmness. That's what we want. Not many of us are that, but that's what we want to be. Steadfast. Immovable. Spiritually firm. How? Looking to the coming of Jesus. The Lord's coming is at hand. That's how we remain steadfast. That's how we remain spiritually firm. Weightlifters do it by repetition, hitting the gym, eating the protein shakes, sucking down raw eggs. We do it by repetitiously looking to the coming of Jesus. He's coming back. He sees all I'm going through. He sees all I'm doing for him and his kingdom because I'm seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, knowing all these other things that the world so viciously pursues. I'm pursuing him and his kingdom. And he sees it all. And he's coming back with a handsome reward. That's how we stay firm. Realizing that in the face of terrible suffering, disappointment, Physical suffering, emotional suffering, psychological suffering, relational suffering, emotional suffering, even spiritual suffering. He sees it. And his encouragement to you is be patient. Resolution is coming. So he's calling us to look forward into the future. Be patient. That's how you can get this kind of patience. By looking forward to the coming of Jesus and his rule and reign over the new universe. Do not grumble against one another, brothers. So that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So Psalm 37, 7 says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in His ways. Over the man who carries out evil devices. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, My beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the Lord... Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. He sees you. He sees your labor. He's coming back with reward. Now, the sin of grumbling is one that we're all guilty of. And some of us don't even realize it's a sin. 
Okay? Grumbling is basically complaining. How many of you could wear the complaining jersey? I'm on that team. Yeah. And, and grumbling is this always complaining about something and someone and some situation and oh my. Complain, complain, complain. We are complaining Christians. Especially when we're going through trouble and trials. And here's what James is getting at. He knows human nature very well. He's a fantastic pastor that sees right into the hearts of sinful people. When we're suffering and when we're going through stuff, we have a tendency to lash out on those who are closest to us. Our husbands, our wives, our children, our co-workers, our friends sometimes. You guys know what I'm talking about. Very rarely will we lash out on a perfect stranger, maybe in traffic, but usually there's windows, multiple windows between you and them, so you do it because you feel safe until they open their door. And you're like, oh man, you either hit the gas in reverse or in forward. But the point is, James knows that we will grumble and complain against one another who are close to us, especially in this context of suffering. And James says, it, it shall not be named among us. Have you ever thought of your complaining, habitual grumbling as a sin that God says, turn from it? Have you ever thought it a problem? Have you ever wondered in the middle of your rant and complain about so-and-so or what they said about me or what they did to me or grumble, 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 God says, you know you're sinning right now. Sins of the tongue. Do not grumble against one another. And so we can particularly apply this to us. We as Eternal City Church have made it a priority to seek to do life together. We want to be a church that doesn't just meet on Sunday nights. Now, I know some of you long for that, and the structure's not in place. It's coming. Some of you who have been in that situation for years, you know exactly what James is talking about. Don't you? Because it's so easy once you get to know someone, and once they've stabbed you a few times, to now just begin to grumble about them. John Piper said, everybody's impressive from a distance. That's the truth. The less I know about you, the better. And if I get to know you, there will be much to grumble about. That doesn't give me permission to grumble about you, though. Rather, your sin should actually highlight my sin, because I'm not unlike you. If I see something in you that's ugly, I should be able to look in the mirror and see it even uglier in me because I'm no different than you. Rather, what we do as fearful, hiding, I don't want to be exposed people is we want everyone to look away from our ugliness so we shine the ugliness of others brighter. Listen, can we be a church that is not afraid to let our ugliness shine and let me minimize your ugliness in conversation? Rather, let me stand up for you and honor you rather than grumble and complain about you. And may that be our mark. God can do that. God can do that. Yesterday I was in a conversation with a brother who 
as far as I was concerned, I met him for the first time, but he knew me, and he knew people in our church, and he had an encouraging thing to say to me. He said, uh, everybody who I talk to from your church has good things to say about you, and I looked at him and I said, if they had bad things to say about me, you probably wouldn't tell me, would you? And he said, you know, my mother always told me, can you finish it? If you don't have... That could be a proverb, couldn't it? See, see, the point is, we should not be grumbling and complaining against one another. It's so easy to do. It could just roll off the tongue like LMNOP. Grumble, complain, complain. Did you hear about so-and-so? Do you know what they did to me? Did you see what they posted on Facebook? Listen, let's be people who squash that and rather look for the good. It's called looking for evidences of grace. I tell you that if you become an expert looker for evidences of grace in people's lives, rather than expert lookers of all that's negative, you will actually be a happier person. Because you'll get to rejoice in all that God's doing in everyone you know from this church. How can you not be happy? If I'm an expert in all the areas that bread is growing and that God's moving, how can I not be happy when I look at Brett? I see him and I smile because I'm, I'm highlighting all the things that God's doing in Brett's life. I look at Eddie, and rather than seeing all the ugliness, I see all, and Eddie, you're beautiful, by the way, bro. Doesn't he look fresh today? Look at him. He's just matching that Rolex on. Bro. Rather than seeing all of the ugliness, I see all that God is doing in Eddie's life. And I can't help but look at him and smile because in my mind, I see all that God's doing in Eddie. Not all that Eddie's doing wrong. Do you see how this is a, a positive command and not a negative condemnation? Evidences of grace. And believe me, listen, if they're a Christian, God's doing something in their lives. Let's get out the magnifying glasses and let's get looking. Because sometimes you need a magnifying glass, right? You laugh, but you know what I'm talking about. Sometimes you need the magnifying glass, but listen, pull it out if you need to. Pull it out if you need to. And find what God's doing. And stop grumbling and complaining. So, so next time I meet Eddie, I'm going to make it a point to say, you know what? This is what I saw God doing in Tyree's life. This is what I see God doing in John's life. This is what I see God doing in Vince's life. And, and all of a sudden, the person I'm talking to, their view of Vince, Tyree, and John goes up. Rather than the opposite, when you complain and grumble, their view of the other goes down. And then when we gather, we look at each other and we're like, I know. You don't know I know, but I know. Right? We do that. Rather... Man, what if when I looked at Heather, I saw all that God was doing in Heather's life, and then I made a point to spread that, like the reverse gossip. God, do it, please. For the judge is standing at the door. We'll visit that at the end. Verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Now... Rather than go to all the Old Testament prophets, which there are countless examples we could point to, because basically if you were a prophet, 
you were just asking for trouble, hatred, getting thrown in a broken cistern, getting rocks thrown at you, getting sawn into, etc. But the one we're familiar with, who I think is the uh, capital P outside of Jesus prophet, is John the Baptist. Here's what John MacArthur says about John the Baptist. The prophetic office began with Moses and extended until the Babylonian captivity, after which for 400 years Israel had no prophet until John the Baptist. He was the valedictorian of the prophets, the most dynamic, articulate, confrontational, and powerful spokesman spokesman God had ever called. As the last prophet, he would not only announce the Messiah was coming, but that he had arrived. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John was both prophet and fulfillment of prophecy. Because you remember when the Jews and the Jewish leaders came to John and said, Are you the one? No. Are you the prophet? Deuteronomy 18, 18. No. Who are you then? Give us an answer that we may take it back to those who sent us. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, the fulfillment of prophecy. He was the Elijah who was to come. And so, you know the story, Matthew 11, 1 to 6, when Jesus had finished instructing the 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, leopards are cleansed and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And so John the Baptist, like all the other prophets, was persecuted for his, specifically, condemnation of Herod, taking his brother's wife. Put in prison brought to preach in front of Herod because he liked to hear him, though he scared him, and he kind of wanted to kill him. He had this weird relationship with John. John, come up out of your solitary confinement and give me a sermon that I might be freaked out and make me want to kill you. Now go back to prison until I call you up for another. That's kind of the relationship. Matthew 14, 3 to 12, Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because he held him to be a prophet. When Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. And so here we have what basically happened to all the prophets. And James brings up the prophets as an example here of suffering and patience. So even John, at the lowest point in his life, who looked at Jesus, who was filled, listen, 
with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. Wait a minute, I thought people didn't get filled with the Holy Spirit until Acts chapter 2. Not John. Filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. Seeing the dove, the Holy Spirit, come down on Jesus and knowing that he was the one. Baptizing him, saying, it's not me who needs to be baptizing you, it's you who needs to be baptizing me. I need to repent, not you. We must do this to fulfill all righteousness. That very John doubted to such a degree that he wondered if Jesus really was who he verbally, publicly said he was. Because that's what suffering has a tendency to do. When you're in prison and it looks like everything's dark and going bad and you're about to get your head chopped off for doing the right thing, you start to doubt. Anyone been there? You start to doubt. So listen, if that's you, you're in good company. You're, you're right in the company of John the Baptist. Who Jesus said, among those born of women, none are greater. Be patient, brothers. Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. Blessed doesn't mean happy in this context. It means assured of their solid relationship with God. Solidly knowing God is with them and for them and that they will see His face. They will be comforted in their suffering. They're all their injustices against them, all of the words spoken evil against them, all of the slander and persecution will one day all be reversed and turned into glory. And so it is with us. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now, we're familiar with the story of Job, so I don't need to recount it. But let me, rem let me remind you, Job was a man who feared God and there was none like him on all the earth, as far as we know. And Satan shows up because he is under God's rule and reign and he shows up with the other angels because that's all he is. He's an angel. And he has to give an account for what he does and what he's doing. And what have you been doing, Satan? Oh, I've been walking here and there to and fro on the earth. Oh, well, have you considered my, my servant Job? You do not want your name to come up in that conversation. <laughs> have you considered my servant PJ? And all of a sudden PJ sees a dark cloud forming over his house. <laughs> oh my gosh. There's none like him. Well, I mean, come on God. There is none like him because there's none like him as blessed in all the earth. I mean, look at his wealth. It's beyond comparison. I mean, you wrote this in Job 1.3. This man was the greatest of all the people of the east. Of course he loves you and is your servant. Let me take it all away. Let me take everything he has and he'll curse you to your face. Okay. Don't kill him. Don't harm him. And you know the story, all of his livestock in one day, just stolen, killed, thieved. And just as the servants were coming, who were the only ones that escaped, 
The rest died with the cattle. The fire of God fell from heaven and all your kids were in the same house. And I'm sorry, the, the wind blew on the house and it fell and they're all gone. All on the same day. All his possessions gone. Almost all his servants gone and all his kids gone on the same day. And it gets worse. Job 2, 7-10. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. And so Job was a good theologian. He knew that if any evil came into his life, it was ultimately filtered through the hands of God. Or as some have said, it passed the desk of God first. So so let me highlight what the Bible just said. Shall we receive good from the hand of the Lord and not evil? So he just charged God with bringing evil into, into his life. And then the writer of Job closes that out with saying, in all this, just accused God of sending him evil. Job did not sin with his lips. That's, that's negative and dark, but listen, if you have that perspective about God, then even the evil things that come into your life have a good purpose. All of the bad that you've experienced, all of the foul and disgusting and things you would not choose if you had a choice, God has a good purpose in even, even if you never find out that purpose. And James says, listen, Job was in the dark all 42 chapters. Well, 39. And God shows up personally. And I'm not going to recount the conversation, but you should read it. It's fantastic. As C.J. Mahaney says, God takes Job to the zoo. And where were you when I made this? And where were you when I made that? And here's how Job ends up after God shows up. Job 42, 1-6. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Question mark. That's the question you had for me, God. Well, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. That's what God said to Job. I heard of you with the hearing of my ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And the point is, be patient. Be patient. Do you know what comes after that? Are you familiar with the book of Job? How does the book of Job end?
God comes back for Job and restores all of his fortune many times over. More kids than he had before. More wealth than he had before. More livestock than he had before. And probably his most blessed treasure was seeing God himself and having God pay him a personal visit. And Job was patient through all of that terrible suffering. And in the end, God showed up and blessed him more than what he had before and with a knowledge of God that he did not possess before and a repentant heart that he did not possess before. Be patient. Wait. God is doing something. He's on your side. He's not abandoned you. God did not abandon Job the whole book. He was with him to the very end. And Job patiently questioned He questioned a lot. And God was okay with that. Did he set him straight at the end? Yeah. But God didn't strike him with a lightning bolt for questioning. Consider Job. Okay? Now, let's go back to verse 8b and 9b. So 8b says, You also, be patient, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now, we know that Jesus Himself created the universe. John 1, 1 1-3, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him and without Him was nothing made that was made. So Jesus Himself creates all that we see. All of reality. Founded in Jesus. The maker of the world comes into the world he made as a creature he made. John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And the maker who then became what he made, also became unmade. So that we could become remade and live in a remade, renewed universe. Acts 3.5, Peter and John preaching says to the crowd and the Jews, you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are all witnesses. And so the judge of verse 9 Don't complain, don't grumble, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. The judge became judged in our place. The judge took the just judgment that you deserve and that I deserve on the cross, and he became unmade. You killed the author of life. Yet, on the cross, it went dark. The very sun that Jesus made to shine went dark over him and he received the wrath that we deserve so that the judge became the judged (laughs) but now he is resurrected God raised him from the dead listen to live now as the judge so we who have received Jesus have received the judgment already because he was judged in our place But listen, there is another judgment coming even for Christians. 
That's what James speaks about here. He says, don't grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. He's not talking about condemnation. He's talking about your reward as a Christian. The giving account for your days, your moments, your hours, the money you've spent, the way you've talked to people, the way you've loved people, the way you've handled situations. You will be judged, but not for a sentence in hell, but rather for a reward for all of eternity. And there is a danger, listen, this is a danger. There is a danger that if you are constantly, critically, unrelentlessly judging people, it may prove that the judge wasn't judged in your place. That's possible. Because listen, to the degree that you realize how much justice Jesus absorbed on your behalf, you will be merciful to others rather than judging them justly. He who has been forgiven much will love much. Jesus said, go learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Be merciful to me, a sinner. The more you realize how much Jesus got judged in your place as the judge, the less judgmental you will be. Judge not, lest you be judged. And so we, we should be thinking about this a lot. Again, we're highlighting our own sin here, not the sin of others. So if you want to judge someone, judge yourself. And then remind yourself that the judge was judged for you. And now you're not going to be judged. No condemnation for those who are in Christ. So we want to be people who continuously and constantly are reminding ourselves in various ways all the time of what Jesus has done for us. And that will make us into His image. The Holy Spirit reminds us of all that we've been forgiven and so we become forgivers. The Holy Spirit reminds us of how much justice Jesus absorbed for us and we become less demanding of justice in others. Not that we let sin slide, but we're now ones who show mercy instead of demanding justice. We become more like Jesus and less like the accuser of the brethren. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we, we thank you for what you've given to us through James. This book has been helpful, stinging, rebuking, challenging. And yet we see Jesus walk through all of its pages. Holy Spirit, thank you for drawing us to yourself, to drawing us to the Father, for drawing us to Jesus, for drawing us to the gospel. Holy Spirit, I pray that as we sing and celebrate what Jesus did for us, that we would be reminded again that we are not to judge lest we be judged because Jesus, the judge, was judged in our place. May these truths transform us as our minds are renewed, refreshed in the gospel continuously and constantly. 
Holy Spirit, this is your work, and so I'm asking, please, that you would do it. Even now, as we celebrate the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus through communion, and we sing, help us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.